I think my cat's evolving into a seal. Excuse me? I think my cat's evolving into a seal. I want some photographic evidence. Welcome to episode 14, oh yeah, John's new headphones, sorry John, uh, sensitive new headphones evidently, yeah. episode 49 of the world famous Techboards Audio Podcast, uh, other names are available, Prodcrats, yes, I'm Henry's cat, <laughs> Henry's cat, <laughs> Henry's cat, you have to say it like this, I'm Henry's cat, ow, said Henry's cat, I have no idea who that is, good. Well, it's Henry's cat, I suppose. Some cat belonged to Henry. Shut up. Who are you? <laughs> <laughs> I don't know who I am. <laughs> Let's continue with this, this, this prodcrat, shall we? We're going to do this right. Drinking game. Let's do this right. Drinking game. Okay. Um, well, I've lost the agenda. We shouldn't have an agenda. It just confuses things. Well, I've got the agenda in front of me. Okay. So, let's just go. Yep. We're, we're, news from the world of news. News from the world of news, Darren. Uh... Hold on. <laughs> <laughs> you said you wanted to go. Oh, yeah, because we, um, we're we obviously trying to catch up with the fact that we... Uh... <laughs> Hang on, that really is... <laughs> I'm not joking. <laughs> really? <laughs> is, that, is that mirrored? Don't, t- really... don't, t- don't, sh- don't say anything, does anything. What? Right. That you're Follow drinking up. actual Scotch whiskey. <laughs> <laughs> right. Um, the primate study that I mentioned last time... Uh, Gardner, yeah, it was Gardner et al. I was sort of confused as to whether I'd got the right authors. And it was published in the journal Primates. And, oh, very helpfully, I... Oh, there we go, okay. This this paper where a bunch of cockerel she-fucks uh, killed this Madagascan ground boa. The paper's by Charlie Gardner and colleagues, Cooperative Rescue and Predator Fatality Involving a Group Living Strepsirine, Cockerel She-Fuck, Propithecus Cockerelli, and a Madagascar ground boa, Acrantopis madagascariensis. And it was published in the journal Primates uh, this year, to those of you interested. And there was one other follow-up thing, which I've forgotten. So, uh, we want to talk briefly about transcripts. We've mentioned over the however many years we've been going for now. What do you, what do you reckon? Podcasts? Two years. Two years. We've, we've mentioned the idea of people doing, um, <clears throat> um, yeah, transcripts. And recently, a couple of regular listeners, high regular listeners, have offered to do some more, which we are interested in. And I said, hold on, let's work out which ones we've got. Now, John and I have just established that we actually have no idea which ones we've got because John's lost them. We have them somewhere. I reckon, though, that they are transcripts of episodes like one and two and possibly three. Agreed, yes. So, and we are now on, this is currently episode 49. So if someone was to say randomly pick like 25 or 30 or 35 or something, I pretty much guarantee you no one else will have done it already. Just make sure that there aren't people doing it at the same time because there are now several people that are doing this. So um, you, you, uh, maybe tweet. what we should do is put them on the Tetsu wiki. Mm. And then more than one person can do an episode, work on the same episode. If that's the way it works, because you can have more than one person editing a thing. So maybe we should say that's where to put them. Go to the Tetsu wiki, put them on the Tetsu wiki. 
put them on the wiki. That's a good idea. Uh, the wiki still is overrun by spam. But, <sighs> yeah. But don't know what to do about that. We did have we did have people like hunting all the spam down, but it's just too in too management intense. So um. Yeah, I mean, it's got spam filters and stuff on it, but jeez. I don't know. I'm not a full-time web admin of this sort of thing, so I don't really know what to do about it. No. Well, the other thing is just just um, just tweet us uh, hashtag uh, Tezu Podcasts or Tetra Podcasts or both, whichever. Okay. So thank you to Barry and whoever else is offering to to do transcripts because it's much appreciated. Okay. Hmm. I would still say go to the Tetsu Wiki. Yeah, yeah, the wiki, yeah. yeah. yeah so yeah. so the, to people who don't know, we have mentioned it a couple of times, there is a Tetrapod Zorgi wiki, which is at... wiki.tetsu.com. Hmm. Right, should we move on? Yes. The section of the show we like to call News from the World of News. A <laughs> couple of brief things. Um, uh, if you're interested in historical taxonomy of non-bird dinosaurs, there's a paper just been published by my friend and colleague Martin Simpson on the history of Iguanodon. Now, the story about Iguanodon is that it's named by Gideon Mantell in 1825. He found various bits and pieces, predominantly teeth, in East Sussex. There's this famous myth about his, his wife, Marianne Mantell, finding teeth in spoil heaps at the side of the road, road metal, and then him realising, him wondering what these teeth are, him talking to all the experts at the time, Cuvier and all these other people, and Cuvier saying, oh, have we not heard the teeth of a giant herbivorous reptile? Like a rock, but sort of akin, you know, teeth somewhat similar to those of a rhinoceros. That, that's all kind of this, it's still not established how true any of that story is. Uh, Martin has managed to find uh, historical, like, uh, news reports from 1824, which again, talk about the uh, the role that Marianne Mantel uh, played in this. She's kind of been, she was written out of the story later on by Gideon Mantel because he like got divorced with her and it all went bad. Um, but she, she does seem to have had an early role in it. And there's also some reference to this, uh, this discovery of these uh, pe- people referring to fossils being found in these road metal piles. So there, there was a precedent for knowing that there were fossils in those piles. But there's an 1824 article that Martin has found in which the name Iguanodon is published. So it's published a whole year before the official oh. current story. And the spelling used is Iguanadon, Iguanadon, with an A. So Iguanadon is in print before Iguanodon, which uh, this wasn't known before. We we know that for a time, Mantel considered using the name Iguanosaurus, and he also considered the name Iguanoides, but he obviously went with Iguanodon, but aha, published Iguanadon. <laughs> So, wow, this is a groundbreaker. <laughs> Everything's different now. So. Yeah, oh, my, my, my world has been turned upside down. I've just been wandering around in a daze since you told yeah. me about this. <laughs> uh, um, there is, there's also this whole story, uh, interesting thing I just mentioned here, the fact that, that the publication of Iguanodon actually spurred um, um, Buckland to publish Megalosaurus in 1824. So it's not a coincidence to people who are interested in this stuff, you know, you know that three dinosaurs were published early on, Megalosaurus, Iguanon, Hyliosaurus, and they weren't recognized to be these things called dinosaurs until 1841-ish. But um, uh, Megalosaurus was specifically published because Buckland knew that Manta was about to publish Iguanodon and uh, quickly rushed out this, this paper on Megalosaurus because they hadn't just discovered Megalosaurus. They'd actually had it since like the 1790s. Um, anyway, stop there. Um, second thing, Lonesome George II 
Uh, it's really well known. It got a lot of coverage that Lonesome George, the last of the Pinter Island giant tortoises, uh, died in uh, June 2012. And this animal was believed to be the very last of the Pinter Island tortoises, this particular species of Galapagos giant tortoise, uh, which had previously been thought to be extinct, actually, until Lonesome George was discovered uh, whenever that was. I think, I think it was 1972 or thereabouts. That, that feels right. So there was this huge... Yeah, huge amount of coverage in the media. Oh, no, the last of the Pinter Island giant tortoises is gone, so that we've lost this this species. Um, but uh, that's not strictly true, because people have been saying for a long time that there are other tortoises on Pinter Island and on Isabella Island, which is nearby, that look like Lonesome George and have been shown to uh, share genetic characters with the Pinter Island tortoises. So, in fact, there's a whole bunch of them. There's these like, hybrid tortoises that have got some genetic component of pinter island tortoises in them so um the stories about the pinter island tortoise being completely gone not entirely true this segs back to what we were saying in the last episode about hybridization and, and conservation what is a pinter island tortoise then exactly yeah yeah well there's some pinter island genes so if we can yes. uh, yeah but you uh, know everyone's got some unique genetic traits so that's not very interesting every individual is probably slightly Genetic, even identical twins have probably got a damaged thing in there somewhere, right? Anyway. True, true. Yes, it's uh, it's whether the the genes are related to the phenotype that we associate with the the form that's taxon or whatever. So I guess yeah. But your genes make you Darren, and my genes make me John, right? And I, I associate these things with phenotypes. <laughs> it's yeah. <laughs> yeah, whatever. <laughs> so, so the, anyway, what's just happened is is a team of researchers they've just gone and captured like seventeen of these Isabella Island tortoises, w- the ones which look most like George, Lonesome George, and uh, they're going to do captive breeding and everything. And uh, yeah, and so, some of them are like dead ringers for Lonesome George. In fact, so um, so there you go. Yeah. There wasn't a yeah. So this kind of tortoise, this kind of tortoise isn't... Well, there's an interesting thing there, which, of course, is the fact that... Uh, you, know, you know how people have recreated, reconstituted uh, animals that look like the extinct ancestors? Like, classic example is the Uruk on the tarpon. The, this wild cat on this wild horse. They've, they've crossbred domestic forms to create a thing that looks like the original wild ancestor. Yeah. So you've now got animals that look like aurochs, but they're not. But you could say, ah, we've got an aurochs type thing, which we can release into the wild in Germany or whatever. And um, yeah, it's not the original thing, but it's as good as it looks like it. And it's like, well, how pure do you want to be? I mean, uh, things aren't ideal. We, mm, okay, arguably we could, re- we could genetically recreate living aurochs or purebred Pinter Island tortoises, but for the purposes of what they look like, the role they play in the ecology, uh, and I, I suppose the ecological thing is the main factor, the role they play in an ecosystem, then does it really matter in the big picture? Mm. Well, I think there are bigger fish to fry, that's for sure. So I would say, yeah, worrying about the, yeah. the purity of small, isolated populations, as I said last time, seems a bit crazy to me. Given the given the global crisis of everything at the moment, then why worry about that sort of thing? It just doesn't seem high on the list. Yeah, yeah. So yeah, it's. I think I think a lot of these concerns are kind of cosmetic. Um, and the other thing is this uh, last thing on newsy thing I want to talk about. This really cool paper 
by Per Alström and colleagues, Dramatic Niche Shifts and Morphological Change in Two Insular Bird Species, published in Royal Society Open Science. Science News of Science. <laughs> uh, uh, per Alström and uh, John Fjeldser and colleagues, they, they are the authors of that brilliant Pippets and Wagtails book that some of you will know from the Picker Press or Helm uh, bird book series. And this, this paper is about two obscure passerines, an Indonesian uh, animal called the Madanga, M- Madanga rufacollis, which has generally been thought to be a, a, a white eye, a zosteropid. And then another thing called the Saotome short tail. Saotome, you know this island in the, in the Gulf of Guinea off the west coast of Africa. Saotome short tail, Almaro cicla, which has always been enigmatic. Nobody really knows what it is, but it's been suggested that it's maybe uh, got affinities with pippets and wagtails. Both of these weird birds in this new study have been found to be deeply nested within the motacillid radiation within pippets and wagtails. So they're surrounded in the phylogeny respectively by pippets, and there's like 50 kinds of pippets, and they all look pretty much the same. You know, apologies to bird watchers, but they do all look really samey. And the and and the other one's been found deeply nested within motacilla, the wagtails, like pied wagtail, yellow wagtail, grey wagtail, and this is so. This is a classic example of one of these cases. I mean, thinking of it in terms of um, paraphyly and what it means for taxonomy, is you've now got in this group of birds two cases where there's a radi- the two radiations of really samey animals that they're all samey enough for everyone to put them in the same air quotes, genus, but then it turns out that deeply nested within the, both, the, both the groups are animals that are so different that they've conventionally been given their own genus, now rendering both of those samey genera radically paraphyletic. Mm. And the, the, so, the, so what's the solution? Either you now, you now have to come up with, say, 20 or 30 new genus-level names for the members of those groups, or you sink the weird ones into the all-inclusive genera, in which case the concept of those genera is now completely different because now they include some weird outlier in terms of anatomical distance, which has got loads of weird features that none of the others have. Do you or, see what? Yes, I do. But there is a third possibility, which is in fact the only logical possibility, and except that um, the level genus is a by its nature a paraphyletic has to include paraphyletic ta- um, groups. So just leave it as it is. Everyone knows that genera are going to include, uh, are going to ha- be paraphyletic in a huge number of cases. Given that species evolve, yes, uh, genera have to be like grades to a degree. Yes, as to indeed to species. However, otherwise are- everything on Earth is in the same genus. <laughs> it's just dumb. I mean, yeah. it's so obvious. Are, are, are scientists really arguing about this? Yeah. Well, there are there are genera that are clades, though. Yes, there are, they can be. It's yeah, but, they can but, be. But, but the ones that give rise to new higher taxa, new genus level taxa, um, this, it's it's just a good it's just a good example of this because a lot of this discussion is about theoretical concepts, whereas here we've actually got specific. Um, yeah, these two weird birds, Madanga deeply nested within Anthus, and Amarocicla, Amarocicla deeply nested within Motacilla. 
So, uh, yeah, it, it ruins the generalizations people would meet, previously make about what these animals are like. I mean, Am- Amarocicla, it's not called the Saltomy short tail for nothing. Well, and it's and it's and it's nested within wagtails. So this group of birds that's all characterized by having long, you know, tails they flick up and down, and you've got this kind of weird short-tailed uh, African uh, aberrant animal in there. So, so it's yes. a good paper. It's interesting. Um, and I've now switched to using <clears throat> Foxit Phantom instead of Adobe. And it doesn't allow you to uh, dramatic knee shifts and morphological change. It's a good example as well of you know a bunch of samey animals suddenly giving rise to yeah aberrant weirdos that are doing totally different things within a short space time. Yeah, interesting. Okay, and that's what I have to say about that. Mm-hmm. <laughs> okay then. Yeah. So according to your little uh, yeah weird wagtails, we're on to cash for questions. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I should just say, uh, we'll mention this throughout the duration of this podcast, but I'm interacting with people on Facebook and stuff right now. So thank you to everyone who's sending in witty comments. Alex, Reese, thanks for all the pictures of frogs <laughs> and subshield turtles. <laughs> Raven, thank you for all the pictures of bowerbird bowers. Tim Morris, thanks for the questions about Demolish Animal the Future. Which, uh, did I talk about that book previously? Sorry, which the, one? The, Demolish animal the future. <laughs> I get it. <sighs> okay. This, this book. Yes, you did. Yeah, I did talk about it. Yeah. So Tim says, if you could talk about Demolish animal the future, that would be great. Well, Tim, we spoke about it before. I'm not doing it again. I'm really itching to know why there are no land mammals and no flying birds and how those went extinct, but I can't read French well enough. Uh, the basic gist of it is that the, there's been like you know anthropogenic extinction of everything, and the only things that have survived are kind of a few small generalists. So there's like various small bats that have survived. There's various small birds in the tropics that have made it through, but there is no megafauna, no no current megafauna. So you've got like new evolution of giant bats and giant descendants of ducks and crows and things basically and and in the oceans there's a whole story yeah in the oceans all the marine megafauna has gone and you've got this new megafauna that's evolved from the little squids and copepods and things that survived anthropogenic extinction is there an english translation coming yes 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 that's all i know okay then (laughs) (laughs) there is because uh because because my uh review was instrumental in getting people onto the case and saying, wow, we should translate this into English. And, uh, yeah, some people are... Yeah, I can't, I can't remember the name of the publisher. Sorry, top but, people uh, are on the case. Okay. Top men. <laughs> or women. We don't really know. Yes, there was a reference to a film. I know it was. <clears throat> um, okay. women. Most people in publishing are women, in my experience, actually. Anyway, yeah. Yeah. Okay. Right. Can we... Uh, nice tangent. Let's uh, let's move on to cash for questions. Um, our first question is from Tristan Rapp, and sorry, Tristan, I lost your cash for question. This is why it's so late, but um, I found it now. So, oh, I'm drinking to that. John losing something. That's got to be a <laughs> yeah. Um, Permian fauna, faunal extinctions. Sorry, Permian faunal assemblages seem disproportionately biased towards large predators, with several species of big carnivores for every large herbivore. 
even when we do get large herbivores, they rarely seem larger than a rhino. Is it possible that they were a giant, i.e. elephant-sized herbivores in the Permian, but we've just not found them yet? What say you, Darren? Uh, uh, Good question, Tristan. Um, I say that, uh, firstly, I don't believe the assemblages are disproportionately biased towards large predators. I think that this may be a mis- thing word of course that word uh, mischaracterization I, I think, yeah mis- yeah mis- that'll do a mischaracterization based on the fact that there is more information out there about gorgonopsians and antiosaurids and such uh, and brithopodids whereas uh no if you actually look at the records of uh, uh taxa and individuals there are large numbers of like paraeosaurs and herbivorous uh, dicynodonts and um uh herbivorous Dinocephalians. And the number of dicynodonts, don't know if you've looked at the list of dicynodont taxa, it's name name the dicynodont taxa that you can remember. I won't, I won't embarrass you, John, because it's quite hard to do. But you know, most people would say, well, Lystrosaurus, Canamiaria, Placerius, um, maybe that's about it. That's what a dicynodon. Did I say that? Yeah. You didn't. No. Okay. Yeah. So, but you know, m- you could probably think of like four or five, you know, very few people being experts on these animals you look at the somewhere around here i've got um gillian king's book on dicynodonts there's hundreds of the things the number the number of taxa is through the roof there it's it's nuts there's loads of them and the numbers of them the numbers of individuals that are known from these faunas you know the russian ones the south african ones uh there's they're they're huge and huge in terms of biomass my okay my impression is, and sorry, this is an impression and not empirical, but my impression is that that there are that they do significantly outnumber those famous dinocephalians, gorgonopsians, uh, the, the the famous predatory ones, by some order of magnitude. I think the biomass is, uh, yeah, this is, we'll speak for that. There's a, there's that paper by uh, Mike Benton from sometime around about 1980, where um, he uh, compiles like numbers of individuals known in uh, permo-triassic faunas across synapsids and across archosaurs. And, uh, and he shows that, bear in mind, you know, he was arguing at the time that the idea that dinosaur faunas are <clears throat> 100 herbivores to one carnivore, he was saying that isn't unique to dinosaurs. That can't necessarily be used as an argument for um, uh, yeah, endothermy. He was also using it to talk about the changes changes in the fortunes of the different groups about dinosaurs, you know, being around for a long time and not dominating until other groups go extinct. Obviously, that was the main, the raison d'etre of his study. But if you look at the figures there, my recollection from the graphs is that it shows that the, the herbivorous stem mammal groups uh, um, and, and other groups as well, like pariasaurs and stuff, there being significant numbers of, of herbivores. So, so that that's my that's my general feeling on that 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 don't underestimate the diversity and numbers of groups like dicynodonts and herbivorous dinocephalians. As goes the size issue thing, well, we can only make conclusions based on the fossils that we have, and yeah, it does seem to be the case that we don't have uh, specimens of these animals, pariasaurs, uh, and stem mammal lineages. That it's true are not they're not bigger than cattle or, or you know a mid-sized rhino or a you know, mid-sized hippo. They don't seem to get bigger than that. They get to even the 
that's although let's be clear a, a hippo is a pretty big animal yeah i mean for people that are used to sauropods maybe not but in the history of life of the clades you know getting big that's that's big <laughs> yes i i think you're talking about really big uh and uh, giant dinocephalians that are like a ton or maybe over a ton so as big as a big bull or as big as a mid-sized hippo yeah. Uh, you're not. I don't think you're talking about animals that are like two or three tons. I can't remember ever seeing an estimate of that kind of size. But you're talking about things about a ton. So um, yeah, that's big. And those are the those are the biggest animals that had evolved by that time, right? I'm trying to think if there's any giant marine things. I don't think there are in the in the Permian. Um, mm. Even among fish, I don't think there are. I don't think there are gigantic fish until you get to the Triassic. Uh, I could be wrong on that. I should know quite a lot about fish. Oh, Donkolosteus was relatively big, wasn't it? Damn it, Devonian placoderms. Good call. Yeah. And there's a whole bunch of giant placoderms, not just Donkolosteus. Yeah, there's 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 loads of those things. Okay, scrap that then. Whatever. Forget about the aquatic stuff. No, that's aquatic. Yeah. Yeah, 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 yeah. Terrestrial. No, these animals. Yeah, uh, Tristan's uh, generalization there is correct. They are really larger than a rhino, or they're not larger than a rhino. Were there bigger ones? Well. So far, to my knowledge, I don't think we've got any indication that there were. Mm. So um, that's one th- of those things that, huh? That doesn't seem surprising to me, though. Of course, you know, I don't, no. A rhino is really a big animal. So, well, you know. I was going to say, yeah, you shouldn't expect animals to be able to evolve to sauropod-like sizes. The fact that sauropods did what they did, the fact that some mammal groups did what they did, is because of the. Yeah, biomechanical and uh, physiological parameters of those specific groups that shouldn't necessarily shouldn't apply. You shouldn't assume that it should apply to other groups. Mm. So it kind of bugs me when people invent speculative worlds. Good example is the the world of the future is wild. They're thinking, well, if we've got giant reptiles evolving, then um, we should have sauropod sized things because that's what happened in the past. It's like no, the fact that there were sauropod sized sauropods is because there were sauropods. It doesn't mean that if you get if if lizards or turtles rule the world that you'll get <laughs> sauropod sized turtles, which is which is how people seem to think. They seem to think there's this inevitability about that kind of stuff. Yeah. So, yeah. yeah. And I would say that that plays into this as well. No, you shouldn't expect there to be, uh, yeah, uber giant stem mammals or pariasaurs. There just weren't. That's not. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because they were very big ones, but not super giant ones. Yeah, yeah. And they're, they're, and if and if someone wants to, you know, I'm sure you could come up with a list of reasons as to why that's so. They did not evolve uh, the specific kind of you know limb construction or bone microtexture or whatever that um, other groups did that did evolve super giant size. So that, I think there's reasons you could come up with. They just didn't. Just didn't yeah. happen. Yeah. <clears throat> well, it did happen, but much later on, right? Not about stem within, mammals, not within that yeah, not, clade, but yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, not within those lineages he has in mind. Yeah. All right, I think that's an answer. Um, I would. Say, I just. I. I remember seeing something about this, but I didn't read it properly. About um, if we're talking about the Demetrodon, Nadaphosaurus sort of fauna, um, it's wrong to presume that Demetrodon was just preying upon animals of its own size land animals of its own size, right? So you could get more Demetrodons in a form, fauna because it's eating. Did you see this? There was something about this recently. Yeah, aquatic foraging. Yeah, aquatic foraging. Um, yeah. It doesn't even necessarily rely on aquatic foraging, but this argument that, you know, you, uh, 
lots of carnivores could be eating things smaller than them, and so you've got to add all that stuff up, right? Anyway, I don't think that was exactly the question. We, but- we could talk for l- at great length about recent thoughts on Dimetrodon. There's a lot of exciting stuff happening in the world of Dimetrodon research at the moment, which we won't. I also mean to write about it for Tetsu, which I haven't done. Um, I'll say that some of that work is really quite interesting, but do take some of it with a, with a, a large boulder made of salt because <laughs> some of the claims that are out there about Dimetrodon at the moment, and it's specifically its ecology. I mean, there's these changing ideas as, to, as goes life appearance of those sailbacked uh, yeah, stem mammals. Um, but um, yeah, let's okay. Stop me there. Stop yeah, me there because we need to move on. Okay. Yeah. Okay. So um, thanks, Tristan. Good question. Um, so our next question's from uh, yeah, we'll do this one by from Will Goring, uh, who I think has actually um, asked many a question before. Is bat white nose syndrome as big a deal as it seems? If so, how come it's getting so little press compared to CCD? Oh, and yes, we will do the follow-up question, but let's let's start with that. Um, just or to should, remind... Actually, should I say, or should I actually ask the follow-up question as well, because it might all get mixed up. Yeah, I think we should. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, so the follow-up question is, these big rapid clay-specific diets seem to be ten a penny at the moment. Is there a reason to believe they're historically unusual, or would this likely have been a constant feature of life on Earth? Would they uh, even leave a trace in the fossil record? Yeah, brilliant question. Do you know what CCD is? It's um, colony collapse disorder. Uh, I'm most familiar with it as it pertains to bees, is it used for other? I think it's mostly you know, regards honeybees, the die-off of honeybees, uh, specifically in North America and, and Europe. Um, well, yeah, uh, very, very interesting question. Is there, is there like a historical context? Is there a precedent for these things? Well, as as always, the kind of the short and simple answer is we don't know. Uh, and uh, Will's, Will specifically asked, would, would it even leave a trace in the fossil record? Well, you think of like, so, so bat white nose syndrome, I did research on this question. This is another one I did research on it weeks ago and now have lost the notes. But um, we're talking about the, the deaths of millions of bats in the eastern United States where white nose syndrome is an issue. You're talking about okay without checking i could go on wikipedia now and check this i could look at the article i wrote about it for tetrapodology i think it's something like 40 percent mortality uh so millions of bats you know whole colonies being some well colonies being lost but colonies being reduced a colony of like tens of thousands is now down to a couple of thousand you know mm-hmm. so they think they are gonna gonna disappear um but you think about so from the fossil record do you ever have thousands and thousands of bats that have all died at the same time no even the places that have got the best bat fossil record in the world like the green river formation and mesel so these eocene places where there are lots of bats you're talking about tens of bats at best a couple of hundred bats which have been time averaged you're talking about animals that died over minimum decades of centuries maximum tens of thousands of years you know preserved in fine grained sediments along the lakes 
I don't think you would likely get cases in the fossil record where you can tell that there have been mass die-offs of things, nor do you have populations good enough for you to suddenly spot, oh, wow, all the bees died in this decade, mm. and then this decade bees were you know, missing from a lot of areas. I, I, don't, I just don't think that we have anything in the fossil record that's that, that's that good enough. In the, certainly outside the Holocene. I mean, when you get into Holocene record where you're looking at, you know, you can, you can um, uh, examine pollen records, you could, that, that kind of thing, you know, the microstructure of faunas um, over time. Maybe there you could, but for the deep fossil record, I don't think we've got a good enough record. Because basically you just see groups coming and going, don't you? You don't know, it's like, well, in... Yeah, 66 million years ago there were lots of them and 65 million years ago there was none of them whether they all died on the same, in the same decade or in the same year and also um, I, I don't actually know very much about this but how tied is this to extinction so f- for a lot of sorts of animals a 40% survival rate is fine that won't actually um, cause an extinction you know, if it's a relative, if, you know, they do build immunity to it, you know, having a decade where your population is reduced by 60%, just, it doesn't really matter. Um, this is true of some sorts of things where the absolute numbers don't matter very much. Um, mm. Obviously, it does matter for bees and from what you say, bats. Um, and it, yeah, but I think for it, I, a lot of rodents, it wouldn't make any difference. In fact, no. the ones that were left would be better off, and therefore they'd have another population explosion. Who cares, right? So yeah. these things could happen frequently, and there wouldn't there wouldn't be any sort of blip that you would see in um, patterns of extinction. In fact, we do know of some animals and rodents specifically. You remind me that do have that that work in boom and bust cycles, where they there there are like millions, and then it drops down to you know low thousands and then bursts back up to millions again um but i think today today these uh, a drop in the these numbers do matter because because animals are not living and evolving in ecosystems where they have space to recover and uh, get back build their numbers back up it's like bats get down to a really low number there's already so many other things that are beleaguering them you know habitat loss and uh, uh, accruing of pesticides and all this stuff. The fact that there are not enough roost places for them to start their own colonies um, means but now, that. But the, now there are. This is what I'm uh, struggling with a little bit here. So if a lot saying, of them die off, space. yeah. But what if they can't go back to those places because but, well, they're not? Well, what, what causes them not to be able to go back where there's been a recent die off? Well, if there's like a, a pathogen that will kill them off every time they go back there. Oh yeah, yeah, obviously. But um, we're talking about, or if some other species has moved in, which is sometimes happening in the yeah. in the modern world. Um, there's there's lots of competition for uh, hollow tr- tree hollows, and there are in- new invasive species that are moving in and taking over places. This does affect bees. I'm trying to remember which which animals are taking over nest hollows. Um, well, there's other kinds of bees. Obviously, there's there's uh, new hybrid bees that people have introduced from elsewhere in the world that take over places that would have been colonised by native bees. I know that's an issue. And then things like in Britain, we've got all these well, not not any grey squirrels, which we're everywhere now, but ringneck parakeets, which are there's a claim that ringneck parakeets are good at taking over nest holes that previously would have been used by 
native birds like you know woodpeckers or owls or whatever so if something is if something's knocking if something like knocks woodpeckers down it's hard for them to build up their numbers because now they've vacated those nest territories they're now taken over by mm-hmm. spreading successful ringneck parakeets but um uh, this, this kind of going off a bit of a tangent here, I guess. Um, there is some discussion in the amphibian literature of of whether there's there's anything that looks like a historical president for the uh, the amphibian crisis. And there is a there's an article written by a paleontologist, which is like the a perspective on the the amphibian crisis from the point of view of paleontology. And um, the the authors specifically said that that we don't see any indication that anything like this happened before because uh oh dear what was their specific argument i'd have to go and read the article again um you know you've got you've you've got so many uh populations different species across the board okay thinking of amphibians you've got like frogs and toads of many different groups and salamanders, including newts, of many different groups, all dying off at the same time. So you've got whole areas where there's now nothing. Their argument from the fossil record, specifically the more recent fossil record, like Pliopleistine, Holocene, they're saying that's definitely not what you see. You see species declining or mm. individual species being knocked out, but then you see like a replacement one come in and take over and you don't see the contemporaneous groups. Like if like a bunch of frogs die off, the salamanders don't die off. And then a bunch of frogs come in and fill the spaces that those frogs have killed to, to replace the frogs that have just died. Whereas today you're not seeing that. You're seeing like the entire area where everything's gone. So um, that creates the, the... They were... The point of that article was they were saying, no, this is unprecedented and it is different. And it indicates that the different processes that are causing these extinctions in the modern world are not like those that operated in geological time. Yeah. Um, but of course, that's uh, s- several different clades. That's not quite the same as these. Well, actually, I don't. I don't know what um, some of these things are. Like, is coral bleaching a single thing, or is that many different things? I presume that's probably many different things as well. I'm not sure on that one either. Um, I think it's one thing. I think it's like a problem that's uh, that. Uh, so people notice it in an area like the Great Sorry. Barrier Reef. I mean, it's a symptom, not a cause, right? So the extinction of many, many amphibians is the extinct is a is a symptom, but we don't know what the causes are of all of that. And that's what I'm saying about coral bleaching. I don't know whether we know, there's a single well, cause. I think there might be dozens of causes. No, because coral bleaching just means the coral is dead, so it looks yeah, yeah, white. Yeah, exactly. Um, the uh, Patracocotridium, that's whatever it's called, BD, the fungus that's causing the death of amphibians. I mean, that's that's kind of a single cause. That's a single species of of uh-huh. a pa- pathogenic fungus that's spreading worldwide. And uh, there have been claims that its spread is being um, assisted by climate change. Mm-hmm. That may and that may be true in some places, and it may be more true in some places than others. And in some places, it may not be true at all. But there is still like a single root cause of what is effectively a mass extinction among living amphibians. So, and the same for white nose syndrome. Now, what the bat white nose syndrome? For those who don't know, it's a fungal disease. Uh, I forget it's I forget the name of this fungus. Recently discovered, 
grows on the, the noses and uh, uh, wing membranes of hibernating bats and causes them to die. The fungus invades their tissue and gives they actually die of a heart attack, I think. But um, it's endemic to Europe and it's been identified in Europe, but in Europe it's not a killer. The bats here are immune to it. Mm. So we think that at some stage within recent decades it was spread to North American bats where they don't have an immunity to it and they're all dying as a result. So... Bats, we know of bats, individual bats that have flown from like Ireland to North America or the other way around, North America to the European coast. Um, it could have been spread by bats, but it could also have, well, we, we don't know exactly how it's been spread, but it appears to be a new thing endemic to Europe taken to North America, rather like smallpox for, you know, uh, American people. I guess this is what. I was getting at with the single cause mechanism because if something has many many causes then we can probably we can say well a lot of that has probably got to do with human impact right we've changed a lot of things um, and therefore maybe that didn't have it. many of these things didn't happen in the past because you need to be putting the kinds of stresses we're putting on the environment from many different angles to get these things to happen. But if something's got a single cause, it's just a disease, it's just spreading, it's just a spreading disease, then we can almost be certain that these things happened in the past. Because why would, why would diseases that have devastating effects on single species or a group of species be a thing that happens now that i mean that's a that's a very odd hypothesis to have yeah yeah of course there are these ideas aren't there that extinctions in the past have been caused by um epi epizootics um the, like hyper diseases and stuff this, this idea has been yeah. kicked around a couple of times both for mesozoic animals and for Pleistocene, Pleistocene mass extinctions. But they, that's, I don't know, totally arm-wavy. I mean, that seems to me, those ideas seem to be no better than suggestions that you know, supernovas or yeah. raining diamonds killed them off or whatever. It's like, hypothetically, those are things that you could test, confirm or deny through uh, preserved microorganisms or genetics. Or something like this, yeah. But yeah. I guess what I'm, what I'm saying is that something like, um, white nose, white nose syndrome. Well, I think it's almost certain that some, something like this has happened in the past, right? Yeah, yeah, um, but it can, yeah, but, but we can't we, demonstrate it. Yeah, and it would be very difficult to because if the if the bats weren't under particular stress at the time, then it probably wouldn't even lead to their extinction. It would be a relatively small dip in their population numbers for a very short period of time before they yeah. developed immunity, and then that was that. And even if one or two bats did become extremely rare or extinct, yeah. you'd have plenty of other bats replacing them. But that's what makes the past different from today. There isn't that. There isn't that possibility. Well, that's not true. There is that possibility, but it's harder for that to happen today. It's harder for other species to come in and uh, yeah, and flourish in the space. Although we are seeing it, it's just that because we're looking under under such a compressed timeline. You know, yeah. grey squirrels coming into the UK, for example, well, they might radiate into several different species, and they probably will um, in the coming few million years. Um, mm -hmm. In which case, well. we'll say, well, they just, you know, red, red squirrels, they got severely reduced, but then we had several new species of grey squirrel, or the grey squirrel split off from its orig originating species won't, won't be, will be anatomically distinct, and we'll say, there we go, new species, right? <laughs> Didn't lose any diversity, 
En, en, enhanced it, in fact. <laughs> yeah, enhanced it. Well, in the long run, this is true, probably. It's just because the UK went from having one short. squirrel to a radiation, a radiation. of amazing <laughs> radiation <laughs> American of immigrants. Yeah, well, that's the way this, evolution works. But uh, it well, needs a long time to do it. This is this is a theme of uh, 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 in Dixon's After Man. He's got um, there are like important animals in the world of the world of After Man is fifty million years in our future, and there are animals in that that have evolved from uh, ferals and introductions. So, like in the Caribbean region, there are giant predators, cat-like predators that have evolved from mongooses introduced by people to the Caribbean islands, and there are various places where there are big herbivores. Big, really big ones, you know, like rhinosaurs, herbivores, and they've evolved from pigs. And of course, yeah, that's going to happen. There's so many cases of this. That's the thing in my mind right now is gobies. Oh, the fish. All oh, the fish. <laughs> Hundred pages of Actinopterygian fish for the textbook at the moment. And the thing I just did was um, gobiids. There is, there's like over 2,000 species of gobies. There's like 20 different groups of gobies and there's a major important group of gobies endemic to the Aralo-Caspian region and they've been accidentally introduced in ballast water to the Great Lakes of North America so there's like these this group of gobies that previously had this like small restricted distribution in western Europe sorry western Asia the Caucasian region are now are now in the American Great Lakes where they've quickly spread and like dominated the uh, the benthic zone for fish and it's like yeah you give that a couple of million years you're going to have this radiation of like gobies from yeah uh, goddamn fish yeah. <laughs> god do you want to see some more fish drawings I've done lately no no, no. <laughs> <laughs> you've done your fish allotment for this this podcast um so I think that we haven't actually talked very much about Will's original question is why does why is bat nosed Bat white nose syndrome got so little press compared to CCD, CCD colony collapse disorder. Oh, oh. Cry-trim-dio-mycosis? Cry-trim-dio-mycosis. Cry-trim-dio-mycosis. Why have I not heard of this? So that hasn't been getting very much press in my, uh, in my feeds um, and coral bleaching. What is uh, Cry-trim-dio-mycosis? Well, you've heard of you have heard of it. You just haven't heard that term. You've heard of BD, and oh, you've yeah. heard of you've heard of chytrid fungi, and you've heard of the amphibian crisis. Chytridiomycosis okay. is the disease that that is expressed in amphibians and is caused by okay. that chytrid. So you have heard of this, and you've probably you've probably heard much more about it than the average person, right? So I have heard about it. Yes. Okay. I've just never bothered to read the word or pronounce it. Chytridiomycosis. Well, well, that's BD. We talk about yeah, BD. Talking about BD. All right. Okay. Um, uh, well, yeah, uh, this is, it's always difficult to know, um, how one's experience is reflective of the human experience in general, but, um, uh, how come it's getting little press? I mean, has it gone little press? I, I've, I've, I don't know. Has it? I've, I've heard a lot about it, but then I'm not I, your average. I think, yeah, I don't know. Uh, I think coral bleaching's got a lot of press. And colony collapse disorder definitely BD less, I think. I think it's about about sim- similar. I would say. Yeah. So maybe they need more, more coverage. Maybe they're not getting enough coverage. Is, is Will's uh, point there? Um, I mean, certainly those people that are working on these things are, have tried really, really hard to drum up 
you know, public interest engagement. And there's uh, there's certainly a lot of stuff on Twitter about amphibian conservation and stuff. I um, guess the question is, what what's what what are we trying to get engagement for? You know, it's all everyone's always saying we've got to raise awareness about this stuff, but what what's the aim of the awareness? Because it's best to have a specific thing you want people to do when you've got when you're trying to wait, raise awareness. So, what am I yeah. meant to do about white bat white nose syndrome yeah. in bats? Is there anything Just, I can do? That's, I, I should have said, yeah, that, that Will is specifically saying why is bat white nose syndrome? How come it's how come that's getting so little press compared to these other things? I should, yeah. I should, I should yeah. have made that clearer. Um, yes, you're right. Uh, coral bleaching is linked to all the other stuff to do with pollution and the death of the oceans so that's something that we can all allegedly or supposedly contribute in some small way to uh kidred fungi is basically to do with like raising money to help amphibian conservation and it's kind of meant to be tied into yeah breakdown of global ecosystems in general whether and what we can contribute to that yikes i don't know yeah but but bat bat white nose syndrome it's like well yeah, uh, what can you do? I can't go out there and administer antibiotics and hibernating bats or fight off evil fungi. Scrub their little noses. So. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, I, I think and, and so, uh, this always leads me to think about, well, yeah, we can try and raise awareness of all these little things, but there's so little. I mean, they're big in their fields, but there's so many of them that it I feels more to me that someone should decide what we need to spend the money on ecologically and then we should all just give to that, right? I, trying to compete in this way, should I be giving to amphibian charities or should I be giving to bat charities? It's just like, oh, I don't goddamn know, really. And I know a lot more about this than most people do. Admittedly, I don't know very much. But it just feels to me like this isn't the way we should be doing it. This also links back to what we said in the last episode about so-called extinction management, the idea that, that, that people are increasingly talking about prioritizing keystone, you know, key things in ecosystems. That yeah. is, uh, it is completely relevant. Uh, I'm going to quote my mother here. Do we need 5,000 species of frogs, she said. And it's like, well, you know, I'm, I'm, we've actually said this before on the podcast. Someone like myself, maybe you, would say, but frogs are so great. It's like we can't let them go extinct. But we're going to have to. Are there frogs that are... We know there are frogs that are crucial, you know, what we call ecosystem service providers or whatever. They're the ones that like... There's, there's frogs that eat like a million, million mosquitoes or there are frogs that, that reproduce so rapidly they're eaten by loads of other animals that, that are really important to have around. Um those ones you can understand that there should be some effort to make sure they stay there but there's going to be loads of others that it's not okay they're going extinct but it doesn't have a big picture impact on the health and f uh, structure and function of ecosystems um, mm. we kind of need to think about things along those lines given that as I said last time we don't have there isn't a lot, enough funding to go around to conserve everything so yeah, I mean, so and, and, we need and, some sort of system of deciding of the ecological importance, the historical genetic importance, if you like. We talked about that last episode, you know, better to save monotremes than three rodents. Um, 
and also how much impact we can have with the spending, right? So what if it yeah. turns out we could spend $100,000 and save all these bats? Well, that might be worth doing rather than, you know, a few million trying to do something else which doesn't really work or a few billion, you know. Mm-hmm. So there's a lot of concerns here and I just don't know whether we can say this is getting enough press or that's not getting enough press and whether this is even relevant. Yeah. yeah. And, pe- and people are inclined to spend their money on stuff that they can't help but care about more than other stuff. Mm. So there are animals that, like, animals that are oiled after oil spills. Now, it, those seabirds and sea otters and whatever, they can be cleaned, rehabilitated and released. But have you ever heard the, mon- the figures involved, the money involved in cleaning a single animal? It's unbelievable. It's like my recollection for sea otters would it, it was tens of thousands of dollars, tens of thousands for every single animal. Whereas, again, this is another thing the, where there's like the ethicist perspective versus the colder, <laughs> like more practical one. But it's like those oiled animals, it's kind of too late. They've got to die because. Uh, there's no way that it, you can really justify spending spending that money on something that the the de- the, the loss of those individuals is not going to mean the extinction of the species. Yeah, it's going to be like a problem, and it's like I say, from an ethical perspective, it's not okay at all. But uh, yeah, from a perspective where there's loads of other things you should be spending your money on. It's, well, um, this but, is but, well, but, I, you know, just to change your terminology a little bit there, ethics includes all these arguments, right? So. You mm-hmm. could argue that it's ethically better to spend the money elsewhere. So mm. you could argue that that's actually ethically wrong. We were just talking. This is this is the very notion of ethics. What are we doing at this stuff, right? So, um, yes, uh, just just to throw that in there, my philosophy background coming in. That's, no, that's that's good. No, I, you know, we do need some of that in this. But but my my point, my larger point. I here do is understand that, your point. Yes, but go ahead. Yeah, you can't help. But like this again, this links to the Cecil the Lion type thing. You can't help the fact that people have this, you know, this strong emotional connection to like sea otters or oiled seabirds or individual lions, and will therefore, you know, reach into their pockets to throw money at that, those sorts of causes. Whereas less people care about the deaths of a couple of species of bats, even though the bats probably are more important uh, ecologically. Then, and, and and bats are key ecosystem service providers because you know it's well known how many insects they eat, uh, pest insects. Mm-hmm. If you don't have you know how many more you know, mosquitoes and midges and things would you have and crane flies that are destructive for crop food crops all those kinds of those kinds of things. So um, I so think if that, we did yeah sorry go on no no go on. I was thinking there's sort of parallels with in other fields of scientific research. Say, for example, all the charities that are for a specific type of cancer, right? So breast cancer, for example. Well, they might do some good in terms of researching that specific type of cancer, but it's become fairly obvious to everyone that cancer is going to be solved at a much more basic level, right? We're going to have to get to grips with a lot of genetics and if we want an actual cure that this stuff is really much more basic research and that's where the, if we're going to cure cancer we need to be not researching breast cancer although it might help somewhat that actually it's going to be solved at a basic basic research level into genetics and mm. 
genetic techniques and stuff like this. No, I don't know. Genetics might be jumping the gun. It might even be more basic than that, but we need more basic research. Right. And it's become, I think it's fairly obvious that to save a lot of species, we need to just be... The main problem is in the environmental, the broad-scale environmental impacts, global warming, deforestation, this sort of thing, right? Um, and it would be, it would be nice, and maybe this does exist, and I would be interested in hearing. And we must have people that that work on this stuff. I mean, conservation biologists must think about this all the time. Is there a broader system for deciding what to do, where to spend the money, like? Keystone species, that sort of thing. What systems are out there? I'd be interested in hearing about those. Well, yeah. And whether press I mean, coverage no. about specific things matters, right? And whether this, as opposed to, as, I mean, it does increase the noise about um, uh, environmental collapse, but I think, to be honest, I don't I, think people are listening to that anymore. <clears throat> I think a, lo- a lot of it is tugging on heartstrings, isn't it? It's like you appeal to. You appeal. You you use the popular species to raise awareness and raise the money. So you talk about like the plight of the tiger, for example. But money that goes into tiger conservation, uh, well, obviously different charities do different things. There are some specifically targeting, say, just hypothetically, just tiger populations. But there are also things like the World Wildlife Fund that use the tiger as a so-called umbrella species mm. to like, well, we set up a tiger reserve. And if you put this money into protecting the tiger reserve with the tigers in it, you're also protecting like, you know, a thousand other things, everything, plants, insects, fish, whatever. Um, so I think, I think that, I think that is being done. That has been done for a long time using, using your sexy, friendly, cuddly animal. But I guess flagship, there's, but there flagship is a, pandas. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. But there is a risk there that you'll, you're still biasing the saving of things yeah. because that's where tigers live. But what if it's nothing to do, you know, there's no tigers in this <laughs> this particular patch of land that would be really good to say. There's no tigers there. Uh, you know, cuz we killed them all. Yeah. Well, probably. <laughs> but also, you know, tigers, you know, they're pretty much the same as lions. Um <laughs> Well, they are, aren't they? Right? You just breed some stripy lions, you've got pretty much the same thing. Um <clears throat> I'm, shaking, I'm shaking my head if you can't see that. <laughs> Uh, they're all cats. Yeah, but they are all cats. Are pre- big all cats are pretty much the same thing, as we've yeah, discussed yeah. before. I'm sure you could selectively. Breed, you, yeah, you could selectively breed them all back <laughs> if necessary. I'd like to see you selectively breed a platypus back. Yeah, right. You that's can't. That cannot be done. Whereas, <laughs> what, whereas you can come up with cats. Yeah, pretty much the same. What's the name of that website where he proposes that everything has arisen via hybridization? How uh, does that even... I just... That seems I'm like... Sure, you know, we I'm discussed sure this last podcast, but sh- that sentence is literally meaningless, isn't it? <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. No, you know, the, <laughs> but no, where he says that... Oh, I forget the name of the guy or the website, but where, you know, he came up with this monkey... monkey and pig scenario. <laughs> monkey... A pig scenario, which is how humans evolved. I'm sure that's how the platypus evolved. It's like ducks mated with beavers or something. Yeah. And, uh, yeah. But Sorry, I'm going on. Somehow you've still got to get yeah. um, ducks and beavers, right? How did yeah. they get to be there? Hybridizing other things? <laughs> uh. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Well, I don't know. The argument's probably very intricate and quite convincing, but, uh, 
Yeah. So are you taking us off at a tangent? Again? I am taking it. It's okay. It's okay because we've got to the end of cash for questions, I think. We might do one more quick one. But um, what was the point? I forgot the point. Anyway, You're talking about we're selectively gonna... breeding tigers back. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. I was saying it yeah, because obviously <laughs> I was talking about preservation of particular things. So if you don't have a flagship species that you can put these things under, then... Uh, then what? Then what? Later. And also, it's biasing to, biasing you towards places where these flagship species live. Mm. So it's 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 not ideal. It's not ideal. I, I do understand why people want to do it. Um, or that it's sorry that it's a necessity of you know public relations, but it is unfortunate. Um, anyway, thanks to Will for that that good question with many tangents. <laughs> I, hope you, I hope you got your money's worth, Will. Yes, yeah, really good question, and uh, I'm sure we'll come back. We've, we've, we've covered some of those issues before, and I'm sure mm. we will again. It's not going to go away, is it? There is a Touchboard Zoology article on white-nose syndrome. To anyone who wants to read about it, I, I did like a long series on Vespa bats, the Vespa bats of the world, and the last one was about the problems that Vespa bats face today, and white-nose syndrome was in there. Uh, another, another big problem that bats face is wind turbines. They are completely hopeless at... Uh, doing anything close to wind turbines the, the wind turbines kill them not just by being struck by the blades but also by the pressure change kills them but uh, that's a whole other hmm. story hey if you want to know more why not send us a cash for question we have to say about it <laughs> I love that cash for question voice yeah <laughs> hey, we should do a whole a whole episode of the podcast in silly voices uh, like more silly than the ones we already yeah, use I was anyway. Say, that's what I do every every podcast. Um, yes. Okay. Right. So re- let's do a quick cash for question from Irene Delfs. Do you? Rhymes with else. With else. Do you have examples of tool used by snakes? Do you, John? Uh, no. Tool use in snakes? Uh, no, we don't. And that's <laughs> the end of that. Uh, however. Um, let me have a little think about this. I'm thinking, uh, uh, I was aware of cases of, aware of cases of snakes using, um, invertebrates to like get rid of parasites. Are there any cases? Cause that's, you know, using other, using other animals to do things is generally not considered tool use, but in some cases it might, it might be. You know, you know, like how there are ants that grab that grab larvae and then use the larvae to provide like a sticky silk or something that they use to stick things together. That is tool use. But um, the snakes that polish their own scales with a secretion from their cloaca, they polish the scales with their nose, which is really weird. That's not tool use either. There's snakes that can break open crabs. Okay, that's not tool use, but it's kind of weird that there are snakes that do that. Snakes actually break their prey apart before swallowing the bits. I wonder if Irene is getting to something. Does she actually have she yeah, seen something? Is this something? a Does trick a question? Is this a trick question? Is this a trick question? Yeah. Um, I could go and dig out some books on snakes and see what they say. There are because there are some really really good ones. Trouble is, my books are in utter chaos at the moment. Utter chaos. So I think the answer, Irene, is no. Unless you know you, Hold something. on, you talk for a second. Well, I've got nothing to say. I'll oh, just, hold on. Well, carry on talking. I'm just going to go and reach over here and get a book. No, carry on talking. No. I don't know if you can hear me. I'm yeah, over here. We can hear you. Uh, where is it? Where is it? Where is it? Uh, uh, no, no, no. And now we come to this part of the podcast. Darren looks in his bookshelf. 
followed by the other part of the podcast, Darren looks at an index. Doop-dee-doop-dee-doo, tool use. There was... No. 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 Well, they always kept in the same place. They're always kept up well, there. Somebody's moved my snake books. So the answer, Irene, is, as I said, no, unless you know something. <clears throat> so there we go. Yeah. I'll have a think yeah. about it. I'll have a think about it and ask around. Tool use in snakes. Mm. Nope. Okay. Let's move mm. on. Um, what are we doing? We're going to do that um that, that movie we watched, we aren't we? We're done for cash for questions. Well, are we? What? Even though there's there's more. Um. Well, there's. Yeah, I want to leave it because we're an hour and fifteen minutes in. So yeah, so we're going to leave to next episode. Uh, if you've got a cash for question that we haven't answered, uh, it should be in next episode unless I've lost it. If You've asked a cash for question that goes longer than two episodes, and we haven't answered it. Ping us on Twitter or something, because there's a possibility that I lost it. I'll, I'll go and check everywhere again, but yeah. Uh, and we should say for people who want to ask cash for questions and, and uh, want to send one in, your cash for question should be the approximate length of a tweet. Do not send a paragraph of hundreds <laughs> of words, please. Yes. Concise. The more concise and specific it is, the tidier an answer, the more authoritative an answer you will receive without doubt. Yes. Yep. And the less I have to read off screen on air, I'm very bad at reading aloud, so that's very nice to me if it's relatively <laughs> short. <laughs> okay. So, yeah, thanks to all our cash for questions. Ah, uh, good questions. Let's Let's discuss this. This uh, wonderfully, wonderfully terrible film we watched. Shall we? Yeah. So, uh, here's your opportunity to pause the podcast and go and find on your favourite um, movie service of choice uh, a great film called Jurassic Hunters. Although, I am um, just Googled it and it's still marketed online as ah, Cowboys, Cowboys versus, versus Dinosaurs. Dinosaurs. Which is a better title and I don't know why they changed it. Because of a little film called oh, Jurassic of course, World. Yes, that's, they should have called it uh, Cowboys versus Jurassic Dinosaurs, maybe. Or Cowboys <laughs> versus the Jurassic. <laughs> so, just Googling some of the cast. <laughs> I'm not going to say okay, a word. Don't. <laughs> <laughs> it's probably best if you don't do that, listeners. Um. So, yeah. yeah. Do you want do you want to start off talking about this? <laughs> Not really sure where to start. Uh, okay. So, John and I decided to watch this film, Jurassic, Jurassic Hunters? Hunters, or Jurassic Cowboys versus okay. Dinosaurs. Yeah. Since yeah, uh, it, it'd be interesting to track the history of these kinds of movies. But since I'm going to say like Sharknado. <laughs> Which when was when was that? I, I sort of get the impression that was probably like twenty twelve or something. There was there's this new genre of sci-fi straight to DVD or TV release movies that are unashamedly crappy. They're sort of like deliberately kind of a bit tongue in cheek, or are they? I don't know. Yeah. 
it's like there. Some people say that um, the problem with a lot of movies today is that by the time they're released on, so by the time they're like available for purchase, or the, by the time they no, I'm not even going to bother talking about that. I can't. I can't explain that too well. Okay. Um. So where was that uh, going then? Well, there were uh, the, the, there's this those kinds of movies. Like, imagine if Jurassic World was on TV now. It's anybody that wants to see it has already seen it, basically. Whereas if Jurassic Hunters comes out now, who's seen it? Nobody, because <laughs> it hasn't been released. So hypothetically, there is a big market. That's kind of where I'm coming from. I've definitely heard a well-constructed argument along those lines, that there's like a, there's a major novelty for those kinds of movies. It's a product that you don't get elsewhere, whereas that's not the same for like international cinema releases. That was my point. There's that a market for terrible cool. films that are related to big yeah, there films is. Yeah. that come out straight yeah. and to, now, well, you used to say straight to DVD, but now maybe a better term would be straight to Netflix, maybe, something like this. Yes, exactly. There's no yeah. theatrical so th- th- And there's loads yeah. of, yeah, and, and as we discovered looking through the catalogue, it's like this is a big thing now, there's, they're, and they're unashamedly stupid, like Sharktopus versus Werewhale or, you know, I don't. I can't. I can't think of any of them apart from the Sharknado ones and Sand Sharks or yeah. uh, Mega Colossopus versus Squidageddon. Exactly. So <laughs> it might be worth comparing this film, Jurassic Hunters, Cowboys versus Dinosaurs, with Jurassic World, and seeing what <laughs> which bits were. Yeah. Did you like Jurassic World or Jurassic Hunters more? Uh, well, interesting question. I uh, don't quite. I can't think of a really concise answer, but I enjoyed them on different levels. I actually kind of disliked Jurassic World quite a lot because it didn't fulfil expectations as to what I thought it should be. Which I know is a bad way of looking at things. As I've said before, you shouldn't think of things. Oh, they should have done this, but that was a chance for them to do loads of stuff, and they decided not to. Deliberately decided not to do it the way they, they kind of quotes should whereas jurassic hunters no 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 you know effort you know it's going to be a piece of crap you know it's going to be a stupid movie about people jumping to the air shooting guns sideways and big explosions and and it, and it fulfilled expectations and i really enjoyed it so on that level it was like a much better film it was much more fun far more enjoyable than and it and the characters i either they were they were so cardboardy and silly that it was obvious that they were you know like the bad boss guy for example he's like st- sort of he didn't have a mustache but you know yeah. twirling mustache kind of, kind of like stereotypical silliness the heroes were also stupidly heroic and you could tell exactly what was going to happen to characters before it did um uh, whereas something like jurassic world isn't doing that because they don't get it they think their heroes really are heroes whereas they're blatantly not. They're terrible characters and bad, badly acted. Um, yeah, yeah, so, so the whole... Uh, what, uh, I can't remember what, what point Well, the what, point was... Did, <laughs> um, was ju- did you enjoy Jurassic Hunters more than Jurassic World? And I think the answer is yes. And <laughs> that's true yes. for me as well. Because, as you say, it knew what it was, and it went and it did it well. Well... Well, um, whereas Jurassic, 
for a TV, for a TV movie. movie. Whereas yeah. Jurassic World felt like it was going for something where it just never really got there. Yeah. And yeah, we uh, you're sort of saying, well, they they thought their characters were serious. Obviously, there's a sort of a there's a bit of a tongue in cheek element to the whole thing with Jurassic World. You know, it's meant to be a bit pastiche and a bit silly, but it felt a lot of the scenes felt too serious to fall into that very well you know that it was mm. it felt like mm. a lot of it was done too straight ahead whereas nothing in Jurassic Hunters felt like this is a serious attempt at a serious film no no, no. should we tell people what the, the yeah, storyline yeah, let's, line, let's, what yeah, let's say, and, yeah give people the storyline you probably remember it better than I do okay so we're introduced to like cowboy land in probably montana i think it's montana Colorado. little town and there's people that are mining there people are they, they they're mining for i don't know something gas or something and they uncover some chamber hitherto undiscovered chamber and it's like we've broken into the chamber you know they're radioing to the people in the office at the top it's like we hear noises down there and the and the the boss is like i don't care what you hear get in there carry on working and sure enough sure as eggs is eggs dinosaurs <laughs> come out of the chamber jurassic park scaly dinosaurs there's a couple of velociraptor type things there's a few explosions people getting dismembered by raptors type dinosaurs that come out and uh these so, and there's there's an attempt to cover it up, isn't there? Some some kind of cover up thing for for a while. Like, hey, I heard I heard Bobby got dismembered, and they just found his arm. Oh no, no, that was an accident, a biking accident. <laughs> that was a power yeah, tool that, accident. That was, yeah, that, was, like, that was a mountain oh my lion. God, is, right? that yeah, a, yeah. is that a dinosaur? No, no, yeah. it's a rooster. Um, and uh, it turns out that these dinosaurs have been surviving in this like chasm, uh, this like it, entombed in some kind of cavity for millions of years. And they've become specialised for a diet of propane. <laughs> so when you shoot them, they explode. So so havoc ensues. And there's a now there's a local rodeo rider who uh, cowboy guy. Troubled cowboy. He's troubled. Troubled. Why is he troubled? Is it because he because he's split up with his his lady? But what happened? There's something that means he's like he's permanently moody. I can't remember. Because doesn't he get thrown in jail does, or something yeah. for punching his for punching he's, his he's, um, girlfriend's new boyfriend? Who's, right, but isn't yeah, the spoiler turns out to be no good? Yeah. <laughs> but he's like the best shot. He's the he's a champion ex rodeo. Oh yeah, yeah. He was, was he, was he, like, he was injured and couldn't do rodeo anymore. Yeah, so, so he's only he's half, only half man now. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so, so he's yeah. He's like, you know, let me out. You know, I can shoot all these dinosaurs. <laughs> and uh, and then and then there's some subplot with what was the what was the point of the? Oh yeah, yeah, because it was because I'm trying to remember the, the characters. There was the the lady scientist who was in charge of sending people back in, even though they then they want people to go back into the mine, even though they know there's she was, dinosaurs yeah, in yeah, there. Yeah, because there something. was something in the mine that they really wanted. I can't remember what it was, but yeah. Unobtainium. Unobtainium. <laughs> did he say unobtainium? <laughs> no, no, no. It's, it's no, I know. I know it's been used like in other things, but I thought they did say something like that. It's the sort of film where they would say something like that. Should we cheat and look at a Wikipedia synopsis or an IMDb synopsis? Maybe we shouldn't. Yeah. It's more, yeah, it's yeah. more amusing. Um, um, yes. I've just discovered the uh, one of the main female characters, the one who unexpectedly dies, is actually... 
done a gratuitous amount of scantily clad modelling online, which uh, I didn't no, see that one coming. Who would have thought but, of um, that? <laughs> <laughs> Quality film like this. <laughs> what a surprise. Uh, she, she done good. She, yeah, she was, she was a very compelling uh, character. Um, but so the dinosaurs basically come to town and there's a, like, there's a Tyrannosaurus and a really big fat Triceratops that runs through the town. And of course, what do you do if you find a big fat Triceratops running through town? You jump on its back and you rodeo ride it. Whoa, I've got to turn this music off, sorry. Um, <clears throat> I just suddenly switched on some music. Um, yes. So, <laughs> <laughs> yes, and then there's running around and, all the di- and then they shoot all the dinosaurs and they don't shoot them all, they shoot a lot of them. Yeah. Oh. Oh. And, and there's a there's a point towards the end of the film, like Act Three, where some some new dinosaurs come out of the hole in the ground, and they look just like Jurassic Park, done Velociraptor type things, but they've got giant throbbing, venom filled glands on the sides of their face, and I'm like, they're going to spit venom, aren't they? And big nasty big boss guy, who's the one who's like telling people to go back in the the mine, and I don't care what you hear, yeah, that kind of stuff. Does he, he, run, he runs away and hides in a car and he didn't check in the back of the car, did he? And guess what was in the back of the car? Guess what? You'll never guess. It was one of them venom-spitting dinosaurs. And that was the end of him. I did not see that one coming. I did not see that one coming. It was like, no way. Like, this is so original. I, 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 I didn't see that coming. I thought he was going to get got by the Rex. I thought the T-Rex was going to eat him. No, Lady yeah. Doctor Lady was, was eaten by the... Yes. Mine manager. She, she, was. she managed the mine. He was her boss. <laughs> Not very well. <laughs> very well. <laughs> she managed it so well. She got eaten by a five-ton dinosaur. Uh, and so, cowboy guy jumps on the back of the uh, Triceratops. So yeah, he gets his rodeo special rodeo skills back. Rescues uh, uh, his uh, like ex-girlfriend or something. Yeah. Who's who's now I think decided to be his yeah. girlfriend again. And then there's um, some finale where they like, isn't there rockets fired at the Tyrannosaurus or something? Some no, don't they just some... lead them all into the crater and then like throw something into the crater so it explodes? Yeah. Sounds about right. So yeah. the propane explodes. Yeah. Um, but there's definitely like a, a jumping slow motion through the air, shooting gun sideways from the robo ro- rodeo cowboy yeah. guy. Uh, which maybe blows up the Tyrannosaurus or something. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. They, of, they, put the, this... they put the propane tanks on the ground and they attract the Tyrannosaurus and then they yeah. shoot the propane tanks. And the... Is that because dinosaurs are attracted yeah. to propane tanks? <laughs> so it's all it's all over and done and the dinosaurs are either back underground or exploded and the cowboy guy and his uh, lady friend are on the ground and then... Film's just about to finish when a dragon yeah. comes out of the world. <laughs> not, not a pterosaur, not a dinosaur, a dragon, an actual dragon. A kind of like hybrid, like an evolved dinosaur dragon-y monster thing with actual wings and everything. And presumably it's filled with explodable yeah. gas So as keep, well. keep an eye out for <laughs> Jurassic Hunters too. What yeah. I liked about yes. this that, film was the excellent dialogue. And the thing that really struck <laughs> Um, stands out for me is the scene where um, the our, our troubled cowboy and his ex-girlfriend uh, I don't know, they're in the jail or something and 
oh, no, they're going to get guns or something like this. And, and she says, I can't believe you. The world's falling apart and you're cracking jokes. And he says, this ain't no joke. <laughs> <laughs> and I thought, if Jurassic yeah. World had lines like that, I would have liked it. <laughs> <laughs> All right, IMDb. Time to saddle up partners as we head out as we head out into the old, really old West, where things are wilder than you may have originally thought. Epic Picture Group have just released the trailer for Jurassic Hunters, formerly Cowboys vs. Dinosaurs, and we have it for you here. Uh, synopsis: After an accidental explosion at the local mine, a long thought extinct breed of dinosaur, as opposed to those non-extinct breeds of dinosaurs. Okay, forget the birds thing for a minute. Emerges from the rubble. A group of local gunslingers must unite to defend their town in a battle of man versus dinosaur. Uh, yeah, and a list of a list of uh, famous and notable actors in the film. Uh, <clears throat> so, the actual accuracy yeah. of the dinosaurs. Let's talk about that. Well, this is a long time ago. Uh, there must be some screen grabs or something. And and let's emphasise again: it was going to be called Cowboys for Cowboys versus Dinosaurs. Have you seen Cowboys versus Aliens? Yes. This is yeah, not Harrison Ford the quality and- production that Cowboys versus Aliens was. No, but Cowboys versus Aliens was. From my recollection, I've only seen it once, but it was quite the disappointment. Uh, yeah, I've only seen it once. I can't remember very well. Daniel Craig in it. Am I thinking of the right film? So, yeah, let's. I'm going to get up some screen grabs of uh, some of the creatures. And um, um, yeah, the well, the fantastically fat, uh, short-legged uh, Triceratops. I remember being. Particularly unimpressive. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I found it interesting because it didn't look like any of the classic tropes that we know, did it? It looked like a toy one. There's a couple of toy ones that look like that. Yeah, but yeah. it didn't look like an really old-style Triceratops, for example, and it didn't look like a new-style thing. It was sort of its own thing. Yeah, as you say, maybe a toy. Yeah. Um. The way it moved oh, it was insane. Yeah, so the, the CG in this film is, as you might expect, not top notch. Yeah, it's on par with like Sharknado and those yeah. kinds of things. Um, but, and the 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 raptors are very Jurassic Parky. Mm. Oh yeah, yeah. yeah. So everyone, how everyone imagines these animals yeah. look. Um, the Tyrannosaurus is okay. It's a bit odd. It's got some oddities going on, but it's all right. Well, the picture—the the only pictures I can find relate to the like cover, the, the poster, and uh, and the animal in that doesn't look quite like the thing in the film. It's got a really kind of skull-like face. Yeah. Well, if you uh, search for cowboys versus Indians in Google Images, it should cowboys versus Indians. Cowboys versus <laughs> dinosaurs. <laughs> yeah. There's another thing here called Jurassic City throwing LA back into the Stone Ages. <laughs> um, Poseidon Rex, Jurassic City. Yeah, God, there's just no end of these things. Yeah, so obviously it takes its cue from, you know, Jurassic Park in many respects, which leads the Tyrannosaurus to being relatively good and the, the raptors to being just those ridiculous things. 
and the weird Triceratops. But it didn't actually have that many sorts of animals in it, which was the other thing. Most of the film is just the raptors, right? There's not that much um, screen time for anything else. Yeah. I think the only things we saw were Tyrannosaurus and um, Triceratops. Triceratops. Yeah, the, the posters show pterosaurs in the background, and I, I can't remember pterosaurs. No, and as as always with these things, if you, if you I'm just looking at one of the shots where one of the 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 only black character in the film is a black cowboy, and so he's he's almost certainly going to live. Gonna no, die. he's going to die. I don't know, whatever. But there's a bit where, a bit where he comes in with both machine guns. <laughs> just see, yeah, you can find that. And they deliberately didn't show his death, so I predict that he actually didn't die, and he's going to be in the sequel if they do one. But um, yeah, the, the the number of scenes that actually show stuff happening. The dinosaurs is is really low. <laughs> Isn't the first one a bunch of a bunch of young women go to like yeah. a lake and yeah. bikini yeah. up and then and then suddenly <laughs> raptors appear. <laughs> I was like, wow. <laughs> yeah. Um, there's that, and then there's dinosaurs come to town. Like Tyrannosaurus eats a uh, famous uh, geologist mine lady character and then finally spitting things spit, spitty raptors spit and go into cars yeah <laughs> that's probably about it and then yeah. the finale which is about the right right amount because it, it you know it had lots of really good character development and stuff didn't it like troubled cowboy yeah yeah and yeah and There's evil ha- evil mind mentioned- boss. Yes, I liked Evil Mind Boss. I thought he was, uh, yeah, he, he was he was quite funny. Um, we we should mention Valley of Guanji here. That possibly pioneered the whole concept of actually, well, pioneered in terms of movies. I think it's the first this of this subgenre of living dinosaurs in the Wild West thing. I say I say it's a movie debut of that idea because there are of course short stories novels and even uh kind of semi-mythological i don't know what do you call them what do you like the, the tombstone thunderbird story i'm sure you, you know this story where these allegedly this bunch of cowboys discovered folklore, a sort of giant beast I mean, yeah yeah yeah, so, yeah folklore or yeah there's there's that going back to the, going back to the 1800s so um <clears throat> So you could say it continued in that vein. Valley of Guanji, of course, is really, really is a, a great film, a great favourite, and and there's there's a few films like that uh, that the pe- people discovering dinosaurs living out in cowboy land, Montana, Dakota, whatever. Um, All right, we should wrap this up anyway. Yeah, I think we're about done, really. Okay, so how many stars? Uh, out of what? Can you remember what we do it out of? Ten. I'm thinking now it's got to be qualified in some way for in terms of like in terms of good moviness one out of ten but in terms of enjoyment and how many times I laughed seven (laughs) so (laughs) so I don't know which of those which of those should be... It feels like it should be on a different scale to what we, we rate other films on. Mm. Um, 
I'm going to give it a seven because I I was not really I was not bored. I found it funny, and it seemed to have the right tone all the way through. It knew what it was, and it kept at it. Yeah, it did it well. So yeah, seven for me. Although I will say that's not the same as getting a seven for a. a um, yeah, there should be like a parallel kind of silly movie scale. So. Although, you know, it's a lot of the movies we rate aren't that different. I mean, a lot of the Godzillas. Some of them are. Are they that much more serious? Well, they've got much bigger budgets, but they're not much more serious. Jurassic World? No. It's, mm. the, same, it's the same film with a different budget. Uh, made by people who think they have to be a lot more serious. I did just think it was so much better than Jurassic World. <laughs> but then that's because I hate Jurassic World. It was awful. Uh, yeah. yeah. Uh, so I don't know. I don't know if it's that different. I'm going to give it a seven. Yeah. yeah. Well, whatever I yeah, said. It's clearly a terrible film, but it's deliberately so and and worked out. Yeah. Because also there can be deliberate, deliberately bad films that don't work out, right? They're just stupid and bad. Yeah. But this wasn't like that. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I agree. Okay, I agree. All right, so, let's wrap it up. Yeah, so so if if people if there's if there's other the opportunity for us to watch films at about the same time and then discuss them, those opportunities are few and far between. But if there are specific films people think we should talk about, then uh, I am not going to go and see the Good Dinosaur. I don't know about you. Do you even know no, what that is? I do. Uh, I mean, I I like Pixar films, but I I don't know. It seems like dinosaur theming. Mm. Yeah. I don't know whether how relevant it is. I'm not going well, to see it. Well, I have, I have. I guess it is vaguely relevant, but yeah, I'm not. Going yeah, to see it. I've thought about going to see it because everyone says how just how good it looks. The the scenery looks spectacular, but otherwise, other than that, I'm not interested in seeing another take on like 1950s dinosaurs that that I don't appreciate. <laughs> I'm not interested in seeing that again, and uh, and I, I do find it frustrating in the wake of Jurassic World. That it's like again, all these images in pop culture are basically telling people that don't know any different that dinosaurs look like the things from the 1950s, and it's like mm. you know, again, as we've said before, yeah, we might know that that's silly and cartoonish, and therefore it's okay because it's like you know, deliberately retro. But it's like most people don't know that. Most people don't think that that sauropods didn't look like stupid Gumby elephants with uh, big fat feet and. Yeah. Yeah. Anyway, um, we, the thing we probably will talk about is um, Star Wars. Yep, yep, yep. Uh, I'm not going to go see it on opening weekend or anything, though. Uh, what about you? I'm seeing it just after Christmas, sometime around about 28th. Okay, so we probably will talk about that podcast after next, maybe. Okay, yeah. Or the one after that. We're trying to catch up. We're, we're trying to get through a few podcasts in view of the long hiatus. So, yes. um Okay, okay thanks, wrap it up. Yeah, thank you for our cash for questions. We really appreciate your questions. And, uh, you know, if you keep it keep it coming, we'll, we'll, we'll get through as many as we can. Um, my name is Darren Nash. I currently, uh, well, not, I currently blog for Scientific American. It's called Tetrapodzoology. The format is completely up the wazoo at the moment, but they're getting it fixed eventually, Jesus Christ. Um, I tweet at, oh, nice to see a familiar face. Judah, how rude. Tetzoo. And uh, I am at Patreon. If you like what I do and want me to do more of it, and if you don't want me to do this sort of stupid, crappy jobs I have to do to that I have to do to survive, and uh, and want me to like blog and actually write books that I want to do, then 
please come and support me at Patreon. Anything is helpful, even like dollar. Uh, www.patreon.com forward slash tetzoo. John is on Patreon as well. Yeah. And also wants your money. Yeah. Everyone wants your money. Um, but we're more deserving than other people. Exactly. I'm at John Conway on Patreon, so it's patreon.com slash John Conway. If you like our um, stuff, buy our books all yesterday's and Cryptozoological Volume 1, Cryptozoological Volume 2, ha 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 ha, soon to appear. Seriously, mm. you're really finished. No, um, Jay, I'm not going to have any books out before Christmas. They're all due out early next year, uh, at some point next year, and there's still quite a long way before the giant textbooks finish. Sorry about that. Um, produce, merchandise. There is Tetchpod Zoology merchandise available at the uh, Red Bubble shop. That, that I've got a Tetsu Red Bubble shop. Red bubble slash redbubble.com forward slash people forward slash tet zoo where there's a whole load of like you know zoologically themed iphone cases pencil skirts duvets mugs and t-shirts and there's also a tet zoo pod tetrapod cats red bubble shop redbubble.com forward slash people forward slash tetrapod cats and the more people buy our tapir themed paraphernalia the better <laughs> yep. Okay. Did we I'm mention the newspaper? Yeah, I think we did actually. Oh dear. Um. Yeah. Sorry. Thankfully, I'm sorry. Yeah. Um, can I? Can I carry on now? No. There is actually some news on the table. Oh, oh no. Next episode. Next episode. All right. All right. Um. Okay. Um. Yeah. I'm at johnconway.co is my website, and I'm the John Conway on Twitter. That's it.